Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the conclusion of an amazing musical journey like no other. This is 33 with William Patrick Horgan, and this is our final chapter. We've made it all the way to the end, ladies and gentlemen. And as you're hearing this right now, Kyle, myself, and the man himself, Billy Corgan, we are in Sydney, Australia, recording the final episode of this podcast. Kyle Davis, tell me how you are feeling real quick. I am on antibiotics. I'm feeling great. Hey, uh, 33rd episode. If you like, subscribe, rate, review. Guys, it's the last episode. We're going to Q&A this we got one song for you. We're going to come back. We're going to follow this whole thing up. Will there be a tomorrow? Nobody knows. But what I do know is William Patrick Corrigan, thank you for getting us to Australia. And thank you for 33. Actually, Kyle, we have two songs today. Ooh. We have Of Wings, which is the final track on Autumn. And we also have Scimitar, which is uh, one of the best songs, I think, on the Volume 3 album which we will also be revealing the title for later in this podcast. So you're welcome. Uh, we're having a great time here in Australia. Once again, yours truly has caught a cold. Um, so my touring career may be coming to an end sooner than I want to believe because uh, my health post-COVID has not been great. Oh, somebody's making a little noisy. That's me, actually. I was just yeah, I was going to say, you that's guys. you, baby. <laughs> it's time to take his pills. I'm not that old yet, Kyle. I don't need to take my pills on a timer. But um, yeah, let's jump in because, uh, as you know, my computer only has so much power. I don't have the right plug down here or down under. 
And uh, so we're going to try to hustle this thing through. We got a lot of fan questions. Thank you to those uh, that have submitted the questions. And where do you want to start? I guess of wings, right? I guess yeah, I, let, I, let's I teased right the it. final the final note on the autumn story. So should we jump in there? I think so. And I love that you're hearing this uh, beautiful sounding song. And then, you know, uh, for the first time, you're, you're talking um, in Latin as well, or you're singing in Latin, I should say. So let's talk a little bit about your decision to want to do that. Well, um, <laughs> you know, I, I've always wanted to learn Latin and I never have. I had this, this intuition, this saying, Agnes Dei. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where I learned the phrase. But I looked it up, and I was like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So how the heck do I know that Agnes Day is the phrase that I'm looking for? So that's the key phrase. I guess, Kyle, you can probably Google it, because I can't remember exactly what it means. That's why I was raising my hand. I was going to say, what does it mean? Just Google, you Google while I keep talking. So here's the final note as we hustle towards the end here of the 33 podcast. I teased, yes, shinies entering into the paralion of the sun, never to return. Is he setting he and Ruby up for certain death? And who is he chasing into the sun? But yes, it's June. He's chasing the person who's given him this illumination and in some sort of act of fidelity or loyalty, or even let's say curiosity, or maybe she is the one. Maybe her intuition about being the one has registered in uh, shiny subconscious. So he's willing to risk death to chase June past a void for which we know there should be no return. Does that set up a sequel? We shall find out. But that's the story. That's it. That's the last note. So as they um, as they submerge into the sun, shiny and uh, ruby, ostensibly disintegrating, do they go to another dimension? Do they burn and die? And that's the end of it. As I once got in an argument with Robert Smith, and he said, "There is no God. There is no there is no life after death. This is all you have." I of course took the counter position. He called me a uh, lovingly a fool. And that's why I love Robert. No, you know, it's just, you just die and that's it. Um, that's my best Robert Smith impression. Go ahead, Kyle. You have Agnes Day. You nailed it there on the net. And it's funny you brought that up because Agnes Day is the Latin name under which the Lamb of God is honored within the Catholic Mass. That's what it says. It doesn't give me a translation. It just says Lamb of Gob. Gob. Oh, Lamb of Gob. 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 Maybe, maybe in your universe. Jeez. Too much, brother. You've been hitting that goat beer too hard. No, there's an echo in my headphones, and it's really messing me up. I wish that was always your excuse. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, you know what? Let's uh, so let's 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 take a second to reflect on this journey. Thank you both for taking it with me. It's been really interesting, and it's been interesting at times to even hear what comes out of my own mouth because, as you can imagine, most of this work goes on internally. I don't necessarily externalize it to others. I've, of course, explained to the band and people around me sort of the general story, but the deeper notes are something that I tend to keep to myself on all albums. Does that send up another podcast series where you talk about all these other songs? Maybe. We'll see. That remains to be determined. But um, thank you all for um, coming along on this crazy ride with me. And if you listen to all 33 episodes, we certainly appreciate you. So yeah, that's kind of the ending, right? It ends on this kind of weird, the going to the sun. It's kind of a godly kind of chant. I believe there's another meaning. I'd have to look it up, but I think, you know, Kyle went for probably for the first Google hit there. Um, anything you Wikipedia, want to add to that, baby, and it's never wrong, right? Wikipedia is always right. Yeah, I mean, just because I don't have the answer doesn't mean it's not the answer. By the way, taking the AirPod out, I could totally do this normally now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, on that, uh, thank you uh, again. And uh, uh, so let's, let's stop here for a second and think about it like this way. 
uh, I've set it up where the story can continue. Certainly many people are starting to ask, which tells me that there's real interest. I haven't necessarily conceived of how where I would go with it, but certainly I left the door open at the end of the musical pur- purposefully. It would be intriguing to see what happens on this other thing. And let me give you one more clue before we go to break and we play this last song. The world premiere of, of Wings, the new Pumpkins video for Spellbinding, actually sort of gets a little bit into what would happen past the narrative. I have not seen the completed work yet. Kevin Kurslake is also working on this video, who, of course, directed Cherub Rock and now, what's that video? Empires. And uh, sorry, we're all a little tired, jet lagged. So there's lots of little clues yet to come. And as we still continue to build out the IP of Autumn, I think there'll be other surprises. But for the sake of this podcast, that's the end of the narrative tale. And all that's left is to play you the song, answer your questions. And then, of course, the second song we'll be playing today is the uh, song from Volume 3, Scimitar, which some fans might know. I played it at the uh, Benefit last year for uh, Highland Park. Uh, Sierra, uh, Jimmy, and I played the song for the first time live, both at the private event and then, of course, the public event the next day. And it was well-received. I remember Kareen coming to me saying, boy, they love this song. And, and I said, well, at least they'll get it on the box set. But there were people hoping that Scimitar was on Autumn. So that's there's your teaser of the day. Anyway, we come back of Wings. Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by The Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine numbered and autographed by The Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is Autumn and 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five 7-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA, three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, 
to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (gasps) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I came to the last song, and I realized I'd sort of run out of ground on the narrative, although, like I said, I gave you a little teaser there, I was like, hmm, what is this then? What is this piece of music? Is it a coda? I considered even using the song Alienation, which I think we'll talk about in some of the questions. I thought, no, this is kind of the end credit, right? This is like, as the curtain comes down, this is the song I want to be playing. It's sort of a funerary song, so I hope you appreciate it. I I really like listening to it. This is one of the things, and I've said this repeatedly, and I'll say it again one more time. What's great about these deeper musical works is we get into music we would normally uh, get into. If you're a pop rock band, I mean, most of the focus and energy of the music business is on Can You Write Another Rat in the Cage song. But for us, we're just as satisfied and just as pleased when we do a song like Of A Wings. So, And Jimmy has some really beautiful drumming here. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Of Wings.
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to the world premiere of Of Wings. And before we dive into all of these great questions that were sent our way using the hashtag Billy33, Billy, I want to ask you this. We've had a few shows here in Australia. How do you feel about the response from the fans? Because just from my perspective, with the wrestling that we're doing and the other bands that are on this tour, these people are just in love with the music that they're hearing. Australian fans have always been great. It's been a really... uh pain to us that um, we haven't been able to come back down here for eight years. Certainly when James came back to the band, I thought it was a no-brainer and nobody really stepped up and wanted to bring us down. So all thanks to Andrew McManus, the promoter, for not only bringing the Pumpkins back down to Australia for the first time in eight years, but also bringing the NWA on 
which has really been a great bonus to the shows. And I've loved to see the fans really enjoy the wrestling in between the bands. It's really been a great working model so far. I think presenting the wrestling as an equal to the music has really been both encouraging to the wrestlers and I think really surprised a lot of the music fans that they would enjoy what the NWA and, of course, the rest, great wrestlers down here in Australia have been bringing to the table. As far as the fans, one more time, you know, these are music people. There's a great musical tradition down here. They like the rock and roll. You know, many of the people in Australia live on the coast. They live a kind of pastoral life. They love their country. By and large, most Australians are very focused on ecology, preservation of their land. There's certainly a great symbiosis here between the, what they call the original people. Well, we, you know, in, in, in America, of course, we refer to Native Americans. Uh, I don't think they use that term like down here, Native Australians. I think they call them the original people. But that symbiotic relationship, which in the past was just like our Native American population in America, is fraught with a lot of crazy stuff, dark days and sad things. There's been a lot of healing that's gone on here. And so that integration, that peace and harmony with the land, I mean, you really feel it when you're in Australia. And I can't encourage people enough. If you get a chance to come down here, I mean, I know, we know it's a long plane ride. What is it, 14 hours from LA? But man, what a beautiful place to be. What a great culture and what a wonderful reception we've received in all four shows so far. It is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful culture. And speaking of beautiful things and beautiful cultures, the Smashing Pumpkin fans. They reached out. They've been following the podcast. They asked the questions, and you were nice enough to give them the answers. It's time for Q&A. Well, we'll see if I'm nice enough to give the answers, but I'm willing to listen to the questions. Fantastical. Hey, let's start it off. Folks, my apologies. We compiled these, and the paper with the names on it kind of got lost in translation. So if this is your question, I thank you. No shade. We dropped the ball. Number one, when writing Autumn, how did you match the musical emotion with the emotions of the story? That's a great question. Um, what I did is I wrote about 80 pieces of music. And then as I went through the story narrative points, I tried to find the music that best matched the narrative part of the story. So if it was a love song, I tried to think, okay, which of these songs, in terms of tonal, I had no lyrics, in terms of tonal feel fits best. We sequenced all those. We went back through kind of worked on each piece of music to clarify it more to the storyline point. And then over time, out of the 33, so imagine I took 80 ideas, whittled them down to 33 or 34, some things were compiled together, and maybe I changed about five or six baseline songs or wrote new things to replace them. And then once we had that, we started working on that, and then we kept changing those songs. And like a song of uh, To the Grays, I think was there were five or six completely different versions. In the beginning, it sounded like Bad U2, and I mean Bad U2, and then I was doing a Bad U2 imitation. And somewhere along the way, it, it turned into kind of the Krautrock thing it is. So it was, a, it was kind of putting puzzle pieces together, and it just kind of formed over time. And like I've said in the past, we work sequentially, so we kept listening to the work in order. So like the song 8 follows song 7, both in tone, texture, feel, and does it carry the narrative story forward musically even before it carries it forward lyrically. So at some point, you know, Sometimes when people are in a, a room throwing together ideas for a movie or a TV show, there's the cue cards with the scenes on the board up there, and they kind of arrange them for story structure. You had basically been kind of doing that in your own head, not so much on a page. Well, I have a piece of paper. There's only one piece of paper. We've scanned it because it's sort of like the uh, the magical guidebook. Yeah, and I've, I've referred to it many times even during this podcast because I just took like a one sentence, like, this is the part where this happens. So that's the guidebook to Autumn. And then there's like scribbles and crossouts. So that's like kind of the the holy grail. I can't remember the name. What's the Rosetta Stone? That's like the Rosetta Stone of Autumn. There's this one piece of paper. It's all crumpled up. But I have that. 
That's good. You should keep that because we may need that in the future. Very well, we important. May need it to, we may need it to fund the NWA the way we're going. Oh. Let's move on to our next question here. So does Shiny know what happened to June and the others who were exiled, and could he have prevented it? Well, um, by and large, Shiny was not focused on June, nor would he have known what June was or is in this story until he got back to planet Earth. And so ostensibly somewhere in there, whether it was news reports or what um, Ruby told him in their discussions, um, he became aware that this person had something to do with what happened. And then I know there's been some kind of curiosity of what happened to the other people to follow June into the sun. Well, in a moment of sort of solidarity or I've had enough of this thing that we're doing here, living in space in exile, they all floated in the sun. So their fate, as is June's, is yet to be determined. I mean, this the idea of floating into the sun time, sometimes feels pretty damn nice to me, to be honest with you. It just feels like a nice sunny way to go. But <laughs> obviously it's not for everybody. Extra crispy Kyle. That's the way I like my Kyle done. And, and speaking of the way angstiness can be with that answer that I just said, let's go back in time. Try to put yourself into the head of you. It's the 90s. You get a taste of what this album is all about. You're listening to it, and somebody says, this is you from the future. What the hell do you think would be going through your brain? Is that a fan question or is that a comment? That is a fan question. What would Billy from the 90s say about the album? You know, that's a good one. Um, because Billy from the 90s was very focused on what Billy needed to do to get to MTV and to the radio because I had ascertained quite early on, probably even before Gish, that we were going to get very little critical support. So if we were going to be successful as a band, which if you're a young band and you're just getting started, the idea of just playing gigs and putting out records, that's success. It doesn't really matter that you get to sell things. You just want to play and be recorded. So... Once I ascertained that we were going to have to work within the system that existed, which was at the time MTV and radio stations, and remember, there wasn't really an alternative radio in 1990. Uh, I think when Gish came out, there were seven alternative radio stations in all of America. So the chance of getting on the radio even then was very, very slight. There were a few stations and there were a few influential college stations which did have impact in a local market. So if you were on the local college station, you'd probably go to Boston to sell tickets or something like that. Once I figured that out, well then, and then of course you had Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that blowing up. It's like, okay, now we have to write radio songs. So I think Billy from the 90s would be pleasantly surprised and pleased that not only did the band succeed at that, but then go on to make uh, works of great artistic depth that also had commercial opportunity. In essence, the bands that we idolized, the Beatles, the Led Zeppelins, the Cures, the Depeche Modes, who over time, whether in the Beatles' case, very short time, show that depth is not necessarily a negative uh, in sustaining your band past your due date. You know, it was really weird. Uh, last night, concert in Sydney, you guys played Spellbinding towards the end of the set, and the crowd was super into it. And it had a vibe unlike any other Smashing Pumpkins song that you'd play. And it dawned on me that there might be an entire generation of people that start coming to concerts for music like that and then be like, ah, eh, these other songs are okay, but this is my jam. And I imagine maybe there's a whole album that's a hell of a lot poppier in the future, which would weird the hell out of young you probably. I don't know about that. I don't know about that because I really like, like I love John Lennon's song, Watching the Wheels, which is really, I mean, it sounds like John Lennon, but it doesn't sound like any Beatles song. I think there's something beautiful about finding new music about, I don't want to say getting older, but like finding new things to talk about in relation to where you are in your path of life. 
evolving. Um, Billy Corg, well, Billy Corgan at 24 was taking LSD and you know just trying not to get his heart broken every five seconds. And you know, I had to go against my father and my family and you know bad hipster writers. You know, there was a lot of things I had to navigate, which you know doesn't sound as intimidating to me at 56 as was at 24. Uh, I felt completely overwhelmed by the circumstances and the odds that I was facing at 24. But as I've said often, my path was one of survival. So I looked at it as like, you got to make this happen or you're going to end up living this really dreary life, which you probably won't last through. So it was my kind of mountaintop. And once I climbed it, okay, then I had different options. So hard to say, right? It's, it's, but it's a, it's a wonderful question. And speaking of wonderful questions, we're going to keep going on right here. Here's a good one. Can you discuss the inspirations for the cast of characters? Where did the names of the characters even come from? Well, June, of course, you know, comes from the song by June. And uh, as soon as I wrote that song and released it, I think circa 92 on the Lull EP, although we had put it out on sort of uh, fan sold tapes, um, people started asking, who's June? And so it became this kind of running gag. And then I would put names of other uh, people in songs and people say, who's Ruby? Who's this? And so I thought it was kind of funny as a kind of callback. And let me say one thing because, and I do want to answer the question, but I want to say one thing before I forget. And I wanted to give this little kind of Easter egg thing to people who who are paying attention. There are a lot of things that we have not discussed in the Autumn album as far as Easter eggs in references to past things. So I'm sort of throwing it out there as a challenge for people listening to find those Easter eggs because there's probably a good 50 or 60 things that are interlaced in the lyrics and the musical themes that if you pay close attention and you know the Smashing Pumpkins catalog, you'll see callbacks and little indicators. You know, you have to be in the know to know. But um, if you look for those, I think you'll find them. It's like when you take uh, the guided tour of Disneyland and they point out, well, look in there, there's a hidden Mickey and all this stuff. There's a lot of hidden Mickeys in Autumn. As far as the other names, Shiny was an evolution. I can't ex- explain exactly how it came to me from from zero to glass to shiny. It just seemed to kind of fit. Um, and if you know, I was already preemptively kind of getting into it on volume one, shiny and oh so bright, right? Who are the oh so bright? Well, that's the name of Shiny's band. So there's another Easter egg for you if you're paying attention. Um, as far as the other characters, I guess Osira. I've known a few people like this in my life and Osira strikes me as like some of these people I've known where they they kind of grew up in a kind of a you know hippie parents and they have this kind of mystical name and so before they're before they're even born they kind of come into the into into the world with a sense of that you know you're going to do something in the world and you, you have a kind of a spiritual uh mission at hand uh and you meet some of these people in spiritual life you know they got this kind of crazy name that their hippie mom gave them and they feel like kind of got to live up to the name so that's kind of how i saw a siren that the x and i i think i was just looking for something um you know that sort of sounded kind of governmental and even the X, um, you know, refers, this is another Easter egg, right? It refers back to, you know, XYU and stuff like that. You got to look really closely and you'll start to see kind of a lot of cross blueprinting between the works. I'm just going to refer to those from now on as hidden billies. Just look for hidden billies in the work. I don't, Here's a question from one of the fans. I, and this one, actually, considering I did the voiceover for the ad for the album, and we mentioned all the B-sides that you can get. Outside of the 33 songs on the album, how many total songs did you record during the sessions? And will there be additional B-sides available for everybody else down the road? Well, as I said earlier in this podcast, we I did about 80 ideas. So in terms of completed works, there's probably only about 43, which is the, the box set. Volume 3, I hope I remember this name right because it's an interesting name. So Volume 1 is Shiny and Oh So Bright. Volume 2 is Seer. Uh, we'll discuss it another time what a Seer actually means in the sequence. But Volume 3 is 
Zodions at Crystal Hall or Zodion at Crystal Hall. I think it's Zodion at Crystal Hall. I changed about eight times. I'm pretty sure volume three is called Zodion at Crystal Hall. So there's your name of the volume three album. Um, what was the question? <laughs> but by the way, Seer, when you're like, we'll explain that another time. Then you throw something even more out there right after it. And you're just like, that one makes perfect sense. Well, um, that's why we got to we got to keep leaving these little uh, what do you call them billies? Billies. We got to keep little Hidden billies, billies to, uh, to get billies. them to listen to another podcast, which we have not yet signed a contract for. The the question was just how many songs were recorded all together, but you did just answer that for us. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if I went back through all the variations of Autumn, I could find and compile some kind of extra tracks. But we don't plan on there being any B sides because the B sides are in the box set. I think people will be very pleasantly surprised by the Volume Three Zodian at Crystal Hall album. And by the way, oh wait, you know what? See, I'm, I'm, this is where I'm losing a step. There are actually, I think, four songs from the Zodian album that are not... Some of the songs on the Zodian 7 Inches in the box set are the B-sides of the singles, and there's other songs that will go on in a subsequent Zodian and Crystal Hall album, which will release at a later date. But uh, no time soon, because we don't want to disincentivize people buying the box set. And of course, all the mixes on the Zodion Crystal Hall album, which is included on 7 Inches in the Autumn box set, are in mono, and we plan on releasing, hopefully, a mono and stereo edition of the Zodion album uh, later on. In case you were worried you weren't going to get more pumpkins, there you so go. So 40, 47, I think. Somewhere around 47 is the total amount of finished works for Autumn. 47. I can't even write a song. Joe, on to the next question. Yeah, let's keep it rolling right here because we've got some great questions and thank you all for uh, sending these in. When Alienation was going to be a part of Autumn, where was it going to be and what part of the story, what part, I'm excuse me, what part of the story was it originally going to tell? I originally wrote Autumn as the theme, sorry, I originally wrote Alienation as the theme for Autumn. Sorry, I got that reversed. And I did some a very initial work on what became the Autumn album four years ago. I think I wrote one instrumental theme, maybe two, and then I wrote Alienation as a full song. When the band sort of generally poo-pooed the idea of coming out of the gates, now that James had rejoined the fold with a, a big concept album, and there was a sanity to it. I wasn't sort of offended, although I was a bit disappointed because I'd already started work on Autumn, what became Autumn. So when we did the Volume 1 album with Rick Rubin, I had this finished song, which I really love, called Alienation. And it seemed to fit in the in the work of Volume 1. In essence, it kind of had a little bit of depth that then and that work needed it because we only did the eight songs. And I still don't really feel like it's a full album, although we released it, so I guess it is a full album. Um, and there's a, there's a total backstory there, which I don't want to tell right now, but at some point you guys can probably get me to tell it. Yeah, so it was kind of meant to be this kind of opening song like Alienation, Welcome to the World of Autumn. Uh, when I went to do Autumn, I, of course, thought, well, do I want to put Alienation? And the most salient place to put the song Alienation would have been at the end of Autumn as basically kind of an outward song. But I felt that song didn't work there. So by then, I'd sort of gone off it. And so I guess you could call Alienation the 34th song for Autumn. I've often thought if we stage uh, Autumn as a musical, a live musical, as we discussed, I would reintegrate Alienation, even if it was just the theme, like a like a score theme somewhere in it, because it does really belong, and it's a really beautiful song. Unfortunately, not enough people have heard the Volume One album because uh, you had the you know the typical, <laughs> and I'm trying to be nice, the typical fan reaction that it wasn't Siamese Dream too. So a lot of people kind of rejected the um, the Volume One 
work out of hand because it didn't sort of reach up to the level of expectation. For us, we were just kind of jumping back in the pool. Looking back, it probably wasn't the best tactical move, but it, I also realized that maybe we weren't capable of doing an album with the depth of autumn just as soon as James came back in. So it kind of makes a weird sense to me now, even though maybe it wasn't the right way to step out of the gate. Sometimes the sides taste even better than the main meal, people. Give it a shot. He got fish and chips today. I just got chips. They're the best chips I've ever had in my life. So don't just cancel something out. Now you got to know. It's not the main course. Hold on. Now you got to know why, why both of these gentlemen are talking to me. They're wearing robes. Okay. I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know why. Bathrobes. Yes. Very nice. They're sharing a room and they're in bathrobes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just didn't know they had that kind of relationship. We also shared a sauna just a yeah. little while ago. That was nice. Joe's my hetero life mate. It's just all it is. We travel the world together, baby. There you go. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead at this song. This uh, this question seems more my question, so you do the one before it. Billy, how much of shiny is Billy? How much of Billy is shiny? Or as Kyle would say, how much Billy could a shiny Billy if a Billy could shiny Billy? Again, he's wearing a robe while he's asking me this. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, some days it feels like 90%. Some days it feels like 60 the thing about picking a character and writing a narrative is you have to kind of seal that character in amber. You have to say, that's where this character is at this particular moment. I mean, it's been, I don't know, a year plus since I finished Autumn as an album, so my brain's completely moved on. So there's a lot of things that I would do different today. But if you wanted to ask me the day Autumn was done, how much of Shiny is you and you are Shiny? Maybe 75%, something like that. Like in the moment, were you cognizant? Are you like, this is totally me right now or i'm putting some of myself in here or is no, it just I, looking back you notice it all my work's autobiographical to a certain extent because even if it, I, even if i'm writing about somebody else it's through the lens of my perception so you know my perceptions you kyle are based on my perceptions you know you might be somebody completely different than i perceive you to be so i have to accept that maybe you're you know a lot greater than i think you are <sighs> one can only hope but no, that's that's always true, and I like that you're honest about that because some people sometimes are like, oh, I completely tear myself away from the art, and I don't really put that much of me there. It's a separate character. But here you are saying, like, I write what I know, and what I know is me. Well, I write sometimes to my own weaknesses, which is a way of saying I don't necessarily write to myself because if I'm writing to my weaknesses, I'm writing in many ways to the most unknown part of myself. That's why I write songs is I try to figure like, what is that over here in this corner? Like, what am I talking about? Why do I even care about this? You know, there's an obsessive compulsive element to it, makes, which makes me uncomfortable. But that's, you know, that's the agape of being an artist. That's the word of the day, ladies and gentlemen, agape. agape. Yeah, I like that. Kyle is Googling in his robe as we, <laughs> yeah, he, as we he, wait. He, he. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into this next question here. What was the inspiration for the sound of this album? It's unlike anything I've heard from the Pumpkins before, and I'm really digging it. I appreciate that. I think my overall attempt was to integrate every aspect of what the Pumpkins have done through the years, including albums that James and Jimmy didn't play on. Because I'm the only person on all the Smashing Pumpkins albums you know, so there's a little bit of Gish, there's a little bit of Siamese, there's a little bit of Oceania. I tried to kind of integrate all those musical styles because it made sense to me, right? Because we're really in Shiny's world. And Shiny, of course, was Glass and Shiny was Zero. And before that, he was some guy named, you know, Fred or Billy. So I'm trying to kind of paint his entire world. It's it's a way of sort of reviewing my own journey. And then you're speculating like, well, 
if you're putting yourself in the in the place of the character or the other characters, what would they do from here? Because you're guessing. It's easy to write about the known. It's much harder to write about what you might do. Because everyone likes to say, uh, oh, I wouldn't do that, or why would somebody do that? Well, stand there and be in that person's situation and see if you would make the same decision or something different. We've seen in human history where a, a mother will pull a 2,000-pound car off of somebody in, a, in an act of completely insane strength because they're in that situation, the adrenaline's flowing, and maybe God moves through them or something to save a life. And then we've also seen people do completely crazy, irrational things in the spur of the moment. And they literally ask somebody, why did you do that? And they're like, I don't know. I just, it just occurred to me, you know? And I'm talking about acts of horrific violence or stupidity. Agape from the Greek word is the highest form of love and charity. So you are much more cultured than I, sir. What role do the bonus tracks play in the story arc of Shiny? Well, we don't really have time to get into it with any depth. Um, no, I, I, I think that's fair because that work deserves not the quick answer. And I don't want somebody going off on a tangent without really hearing from you contextually. You could sort of generally say that if volume one was somewhere in Shiny's musical path, Seer was the subsequent album in a subsequent part of the path, then volume three would have been where Shiny was before he went off planet to some degree, somewhere along that arc. And we can get into that, like I said, if there's the right situation. But without going into I want to go into it with depth, and I just don't want to give the cursory answer because it'll just become, that'll be like, oh, that's what that album is, and it'll end up on Wikipedia, and then I'll never get rid of it. I respect that. And that also gives us incentive to try to do more of this. Yeah, speaking of somebody who does a lot, uh, let's talk a little bit about your drummer, Jimmy, here. Uh, what is it that Jimmy is hearing or has listened to when he's tracking the drums for an album like this? You know, this is what makes Jimmy such an incredible drummer. He, in most of these songs, was probably playing to the least amount of instrumentation possible. So pick a song like To the, to the Grays, for example. He would have been playing to probably a tracked MIDI piano, probably quantized so it's to, you know, to a grid, so he's playing to something with consistent time maybe a bass line, and maybe a little bit of keyboards. Okay, Jimmy, go out and make it sound like a full track. And by the way, once you're done, I'm going to change everything that you're hearing and build a bunch of other stuff upon it. And somehow intuitively and with great sensitivity, he's able to kind of paint a picture, both in talking to me and listening to the music and understanding what I'm after. And uh, his proficiency rate on that is mighty impressive. Let's, um, let's take maybe one or two more questions and we'll take a break. We'll come back then, of course, and play Scimitar, the... One of the tracks from uh, the uh, Zodion at Crystal Hall, Volume Three album, and then we'll uh, we'll get into some more questions before we wrap it up. Uh, and uh, I guess drink a glass of uh, I, guess, I was going to say champagne, but I can't drink alcohol because I'm allergic. So we I guess near not I was going to say near champagne is that a thing like apple cider with bubbles. Okay, there you go. Uh, we got two more questions here, and one of these is kind of tangentially connected to what we just talked about. How do you write lyrics from the perspective of a character in the story? We talked about shiny as you, but is everybody just an aspect of you? Or are you just kind of using an idea of somebody else you may know and projecting? Yeah, like I said, like Osiris is based on these kind of these hippie children that I've met along the way. You know, sort of overly idealistic, uh, maybe sees the world, you know, in very simple colors. You know, I felt the same way at times. So I, I, I remember when I was young, I would think like, 
oh, you know, the government's spending too much money. Why can't they fix that? You know, of course, as you get older, you realize there's about 8,000 reasons why it'll never get fixed. But when you were a kid, of course, you look and say, well, that's dumb. And that's honestly the right reaction. So Osiris' intentionality is pure, and it's based on a desire to make the world a better place. If there's any failing, and I'm saying this in quotation, it's the failing of most youthful people, including myself, which is you think there's an easier solution and you come to find out the reason problems don't get fixed is because people want the problems to be there. So when you look at government waste, when you look at government misuse, when you look at certain political figures or even cultural figures that get away with certain things, it's happening for on purpose. It's not an accident. They've realized they can game the system in a particular way and certain people are rewarded for bad behavior um, as we've seen most recently in the, in the political class. I am uh, looking at some of these questions here, and it looks like they're going to need some pretty good time for some in-depth answers. So I think now would be a good time for us to take that break, Billy, and uh, listen to this uh, scimitar from Zodian on Crystal Hall. No, it's at Zodian Crystal Hall. When we come back, scimitar. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to Scimitar. Now, Billy, tell me this. Why did you choose this song? This is going to be the last song that we're playing on this podcast. Why this one? The, the reason is pretty simple. Uh, I like it. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs from this body of work. And uh, secondarily, and maybe selfishly, because I'd played this song live and it was well-received, I thought, okay, well, this is kind of a layup. I'll let everyone that liked this song that heard it live uh, get a chance to hear the studio recording. And then uh, secondarily, uh, hopefully that enthusiasm will extend beyond. Because as we said a few times, um, uh, there's a few remaining autograph box sets left at madamzuzus.com. And like I said, the minute this album drops, those, those copies are going to go really fast. In fact, by the time this podcast is coming out, uh, I think volume all of Volume 3 will be up. And given the amount of media that I'm now starting to do and the interest in the Autumn album, I can only encourage those of you who want to get Autumn in the box set form with the extra seven inch singles and of course the autographed copies. And this is it. This is it for these box sets. So, so yeah, so I guess it's a little bit of a plug, but also it's a little bit of a, uh, what's my, uh, tapping myself on the back. Do these I, kids don't want FOMO. Get it now. Give it as a gift. Christmas gift later on. We don't even need the signed ones. We're just happy with the box sets. Thanks, Billy. And they're hugging in their robes. It's so beautiful. <laughs> um, at least one, the robes are still on. One, one little note. One little fun note, the song Scimitar was built around, uh, I have a vintage, like I think around a 1965 Mellotron. The original Mellotrons, the Mark I's and Mark II's, uh, most notably you would hear them on like say Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues, of course Strawberry Fields by the Beatles. This is the original, original OG Mellotron, which I bought years ago from a fellow musician and which uh, worked for about a month and then broke. I sent it to LA to be fixed, and that guy said, I can't fix it. So I had to ship it to England to be fixed, and those people over there fixed it. So it was really fun to play this really true vintage Mellotron on the Volume 3 record. So as you can hear in, in this track, there's a there's a little bit of a vibe there that casts itself back to 1965, which is kind of what I was going for. You know, this is a perfect way of winding down the podcast. We've went on a journey together. We're literally on a journey in real life right now. And the fans have gotten to be a part of that, so it's best that we involve the fans on this. Billy, you got time for one in-depth question right here at the end? Anything for you, Kyle. Fantastic. I like that. Give me one second here, because as I was talking to you, I accidentally closed the thing I was working on. Nothing like a repaired journalist in a robe to, um, <laughs> to inspire. I'm thinking of another album right now. The Kyle, Kyle the Concept. Here we go. Billy, this is the deep dive one. Could you kindly do a deep dive specifically for musicians covering insights in the creative performance, technical and tone aspect of tone of autumn? Like literally when you started this, did you know the entire vibe you wanted or did it happen as it was being created? Not at all. Not at all. Now, to be fair, I had written a little bit of music for what became autumn four years ago. Alienation was one of those tracks. So I had kind of explored the feeling of it. But since that time, and remember, that music would have preceded the volume one album. You know, I've released a lot of music, including um, Cotillion's uh, The Solo Record. So, you know, it felt kind of far in the rearview mirror. I did try to kind of pick it back up, but it just didn't feel the same to me. Um, I think Autumn, if I had done it four years ago, would have been a far different uh, musical journey. So something happened in the making of Autumn, which went something like this, because I'm going to try to get to the heart of the question without boring everybody with too much detail. It goes something like this. I've done Seer. You know, I hear the people complaining there aren't enough guitars. I'm not opposed to doing guitars, but, you know, I kind of get what people are after. But at the same time, I wrote a lot of really good songs, I thought, for 
Sear and covered some new ground. And we did have success, really the first success that the band had had in a while. Volume one got a little bit of play, but not much. Uh, Sear got a lot more radio interest and there was a lot more momentum inside the business. And as you've heard me say, if you're a faithful follower of this podcast, that does play a role into how you kind of go into the next project, whether you have any momentum or you know, the market, particularly inside the music business, has sort of rejected you. And we had struggled for a long time, of course, at different times without various members in the band. We had struggled for a long time to kind of find a musical footing where we could kind of relaunch our musical ambitions. I think one of the hardest things for the music business to understand about the Smashing Pumpkins is they kind of scratch their heads and say, wait, you guys are really good at doing alternative rock. You've got these big, massive hits like Today and Bullet with Butterfly Wings and da-da-da-da. Why can't you just do more of that? And we're like, you don't really understand. It's not the really, that's the way we work. And by the way, we could do it if we wanted to, but we don't. And they, when you say that, they just think you're insane. So it's this thing happened where I'm coming off Seer. I'm kind of aware that people would like to hear some more guitar music. I'm not opposed. I've got 33 songs in front of me. So as I'm writing this, this the musical uh, language of Autumn in these 80 demos, you know, there's, there's stuff that sounds like Siamese Dream. There's stuff that sounds like Melancholy. There's stuff that sounds like Seer. There's stuff that sounds like Oceania. And as I kind of went through it all, I kind of made this weird piece with like, hey, maybe this is the perfect project where you don't have to choose a lane. If one song goes backwards, great. If one song goes forward, great. This is an album that affords you the opportunity to go in 360 degrees of direction. You don't have to sort of make a statement. Because like when you put out an album, you know, you get this thing like, well, it doesn't sound like Siamese Dreams, so what are you trying to say? <laughs> you get that kind of question. They don't say it like that, but that's really what they're asking, right? Bob Dylan talks about that in his book. You know, It's like, well, it ain't blonde on blonde, so what are you trying to say, Bob? So I kind of made peace with the idea that I could be past, present, and future with Autumn because of the way the whole thing framed up. And along the way, it rekindled my love of guitar music. And I, as I was making Autumn, I was literally saying to Howard, I already can tell you what the next album is going to be. It's going to be a straight-up rock and roll record in the Siamese Dream and Melancholy or even Gish Styles. And uh, as we've said, Jimmy and I are already working on it, and it's, it's a total banger. So I'm excited because I know that's where we're going. And for those people whinging on the side, well, maybe they'll finally get what they want because we found our musical footing again. And that's really critical to the way the band operates internally. If you want to make it about me, that's fine. But, you know, I've got other people in the room with me that have a lot of sway over, over final product even if it's just an opinion at different times. And Howard's part of that process as well. So as I'm making peace with all these musical idioms and styles of past, present, and future, okay, now I feel sort of more open to talk about the characterizations. And now you get into like, now you're into a song, I don't know, um, a song that I really like, which I feel people have kind of overlooked a little bit to this point, which is a song called That Which Animates the Spirit, which I believe is maybe the second or third track on Act 3. The X and I is sort of um, welcoming Shiny back and, X and I starts with the, may I have your attention, please. Your zeros come back or whatever I'm talking about. You know, it's kind of like on the surface, it's a musical thing. It's a little bit Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, it's the, the exposition of the narrative is in the lyric. You know, I'm not just singing about me and my sad day. I have to sort of put a point across, like it's this character singing this way. But if you kind of, kind of get looked past that, which obviously is past the contrivance of the autumn album, you hear a banger of a track. In the process of doing that, I wasn't getting caught up in, well, does it sound like Gish? Does it sound like Melancholy? I just didn't care. It was like, I like the song, it's rock, and it works for the narrative, let's go. Allowing myself to, to find that freedom without having to worry about past, present, or future, because that's normally the frame that I'm in. 
I just sort of started to find what I liked and didn't like without having to think about this outward influence. And and I would like to say that I, you know, I'm shut up in my little ivory tower and I don't hear anything, but I can kind of feel the vibe in the room. The good news is that overall, where we're headed is where the market is going. Playing in front of young people in Australia, Mexico City, these kids are ready to rock again. I haven't seen this amount of enthusiasm for young people for rock music in the present. I'm not talking about a legendary band coming to town and playing their old songs. I'm talking about there's a real thirst for bands that can play this style to play that type of music. And when you're playing with an Amel and the Sniffers and bands of this ilk, and of course, Jane's Addiction, you're portraying not only a, a mindset and a currency in a values, but you're extending those into like 30 to 40 years of music. So there's something that happens, again, past, present, and future. So I hope that sort of somewhat defines how it all arrived into what it is, this kind of crazy soup. And even at times, I'll hear Autumn Tracks, and I, I, I can't even remember what I was thinking. I just kind of went down a particular path, and even if it was a dead end, I was kind of okay with it. I like that. I mean, is there ever a moment where you listen to something and you just kind of go like, damn, I made that. That's pretty cool. Um, I've had these moments where I'm driving in a car and I hear something, I think, oh, that's really cool. And I realize it's us. It's like, <laughs> I swear to God, I, I swear to God. Other times I've been driving on the road and I hear something on the radio and I think, what song of, of, of ours is this? And then I realize it's another band ripping us off. I've heard songs that I wish I'd written and I'm driving down the road and I'm thinking, dang, I wish I wrote this one. This is so great. Why didn't I think of this first? And then there's other times I listen and I just shake my head and I think, man, what were you thinking that day? This is so out there. Or, or why didn't you change the key? Or, you know, does it have to be two verses? You should have shortened this. I'm still writing the song in my head. So look, when you do this much music, your your accuracy rate is going to be, is at times going to be a bit amiss. You know, 400 to 500 songs in, you know, I'm not going to sit here and boast that everyone is great. But I... As I've said, and uh, I need to stop saying, as I've said on a podcast, I'm just going to sort of live in the present. But as I've, as I've said, I feel pretty confident, even more so than I did you know, a few years ago, that when you stack up how many good songs this band has, I didn't say great, if you stack up how many good songs this band has, I think we pretty much blow most of the bands of our generation out of the, out of the water. Now, if you want to get into great, okay, that's some pretty stiff competition. But I still feel pretty confident that when you stack up all the Smashing Pumpkin songs recorded over the last 30-something years against all our uh, future, uh, fellow uh, people of our generation, I think we're going to come out pretty good. And then, of you know, you can argue about other generations, but of course they have different ambitions, so it's maybe not a fair fight because they weren't necessarily up against the same forces. So that's why it's easier for me to talk about a generational concern. Because as we've gotten older, has also has other bands of our generation. You know, a Green Day, for example, has continued past their initial success to make great music at a high level, as have other artists. So I, I feel pretty good about our chance to win that one. Not to say that anyone's fighting that fight with me, but that's kind of how I feel. I, I feel like I want, I want us to have the most toys at the end of the day. Listen, everything we create is a nice encapsulation of the moment there, and you've got a lot of encapsulations and a lot of moments. It makes me think of something we saw today at the beach. We went to Bondi Beach. There's a sticker on a thing that said, we are here, it is now, the rest is guesswork. You, sir, have lived in the moment, continue to create moments, and hell, this podcast, no matter what happens, we got 33 episodes, we got to share in everything you've created with you, building up the new album, that has literally just came out as people are listening to this. 
We're recording it, not going to lie, before the album dropped. But still, next time you hear from us, we hope to be bragging and talking about how great this whole thing worked out. The key question, of course, is will you still be wearing the robe when the album drops in Always. real time? It's permanent gear now. Like, this is what we're going to wear. Maybe that should, be, that should be your NWA gear from now on. Like, when you guys... <laughs> Ooh, Kyle and Joe after dark. You can't make everybody happy. But as long as you made a few people feel something, I consider that a win. Billy, 33 episodes. This is the 33rd. This is the last one for the time being. My friend, you got anything you want to tell the people to put us out with a bang? Well, you know, every day of my life, people ask me how I am, which is... Uh, always an opportunity to kvetch or um, or express, you know, something akin to kvetching. And I said about five times today, I said, I'm great. Everything's beautiful. This tour is awesome. It's just the stupid cold. I don't have a thing to complain about in the world other than my health. Very grateful to those listening. It's just such a wonderful time to be in the band. I know the band feels good about the tour and the music. We leave Australia. We're going to go to LA and do some promotional work. Can't give away some of the shows I'm going to be on, but you would certainly know some of the names. I look forward to that. And the fact that, you know, all these years later, the Smashing Pumpkins remains uh, an object of both uh, interest, curiosity, derision, and, uh, and complaint is kind of funny to me because that was the whole point of us starting the band. We realized quite early on that this was not going to be an easy road, that what we wanted to do musically and I guess you could argue spiritually, uh, was outside the norm. It's taken me places I could have never have anticipated, including making an album like Autumn, but here we are. And it's really a time to celebrate. So I celebrate you for listening. And to Joe and Kyle, thank you for being my compatriots and co-writers. I'm so uncomfortable with what I'm watching on the screen as we're talking. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, you have no idea. Um, anyway, I'll give you guys the last word, even though you're going to give me the last word, but uh, at, least say, at least say goodbye before I say goodbye. You know, I can't tell you how thankful I am that you gave us this opportunity to be a part of this podcast and to be a part of this tour here in Australia. I've come up and, and I've met several fans of the podcast specifically, uh, you know, shake my hand and talk about how much they enjoy it and how much, you know, it's just an hour a week, but it helps get them get through the day, you know, sometimes when they're listening to it and they're really into the music and they're into what we're saying. And uh, so I want to thank all of y'all for listening, and I want to thank Billy for uh, letting me be a part of this crazy ride. And I'd like to give a big thanks, too, because let's face it, guys, in this crazy thing that we call life, the only guarantee is we're none of us should get out of it alive. And during that time, you might not feel you have the most worth to anybody, but uh, when somebody shows that they have enough faith in you to help them out, especially promoting an album that is way beyond your skills, like Billy, when he pulled us aside and said, hey, you guys want to do a podcast with me? Um, that really has affected me in a very positive manner and having complete strangers care about my existence and his existence and Joe's existence. It hits in all the ways it needs to. When life's falling apart, find the thing that makes you happy. And me being able to communicate with all of you fans out there, it makes me happy. Billy, thanks for giving these guys a shot. Kyle, I hate to end this uh, podcast on a, on a quibble or even an argument. <laughs> oh, boy. But you said something that, that piqued my attention. And I think this is a good way to end because we are talking about Shiny's possible or purported death following June into the sun. And you said, hey, let's face it. None of us is going to get out of here alive. Well, you know what, Kyle? I am. <laughs> I am. Intergalactic vampire. Well, what do they say in the local paper? I look like a vampire who came from outer space. That was a direct quote from the Australian paper. Yeah. So I'll see you in space, friends.
For the 33 podcast, this is William Patrick Corgan for Joe Galley and Kyle Davis. We really enjoyed sharing this with you, and we hope forward. We hope forward. Actually, it was a good, that was a good Freudian slip. We hope, hoping forward. We are hoping forward to see you again. Okay, goodbye. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.